Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. Okay, so we're going to look today at, we've got a big chunk, a big chunk of text. Anybody know the, this fancy word? Here's another word you can take the pericope. Ever used this one before? Pericope, it's not periscope, it's pericope. And a per, pericope is a fancy word for a section of text, biblical text. Um, so our pericope for today is Exodus chapter 6, 21 through 1110. It's a, it's a, big, a big piece. Um, and it is... It is uh, usually termed as the 10 plagues. It's actually 11 signs with 10 plagues. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, but I think what I'm going to do is instead of reading the whole thing initially, which would, which would take us probably 15 minutes just to read it, why don't we just, have you all read it? Okay, that's hugely more helpful. So I think what I'll do is we'll just, we'll just jump in and kind of work our way through the text. It might be the easier way rather than reading the whole thing through initially, which is what I prefer to do, but time being what it is. Uh, we're going we're gonna to walk through uh, uh, section by section. Let me just say a couple of things which will help you understand what is going on here. You've um, you got to understand that the story of Exodus, well, the story of the whole Bible, but the story of Exodus in particular is important. It's not just a story about, uh, you know, political oppression and Moses, the good guy, fighting the man, you know, and beating him down. That's what we're going to make it into in our 21st century sort of, you know, social justice movement. That's not at all what's going on here. What's going on here in context and in the context of the ancient Near East and the Jews being a, uh, a subculture within Egypt is actually a clash of uh, world views and actually a clash of religions. Um, if you don't understand that, then this whole thing isn't going to make as much sense to you as it should. What I mean by that is this. At this point in ancient history, the uh, kingdom of Egypt was the largest kingdom on the planet. Um, you talked about that last week, right, Father? Okay, so it was the Pharaoh is, is, uh, is, the, is the big man, right? He is the, he is the uh, it's, a, it's a small but an empire. It has a lot of control in the uh, ancient Near East. And it's a, the Pharaoh is sort of the, the representative of political power and cultural power. You with me? The other thing, which is the subtext and all that, is that Pharaoh actually represents God, or a God, a pagan understanding of God. So the, the, the Egyptians were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped all sorts of things. And in fact, most cultures historically are polytheistic. You might have one main god and sort of sub-gods, or uh, maybe you have just all different gods that sort of duke it out and you know, do all sorts of crazy things. But in the context of the uh, Egyptian uh, system, they were polytheistic. They worshiped the sun, the sun god. They worshiped the gods of the crops. They worshiped gods of the Nile, which is why throwing a, the boys into the Nile was, we talked about two weeks ago, potentially sort of a child sacrifice idea. But the, the big thing to understand here is that what you're seeing in this plague and these, these 10 plagues and this fight between Moses and Pharaoh isn't a fight between Moses and, Aaron, and Pharaoh. It's a fight between God of truth and the God of this, of, and false gods. Make sense? 
So when you understand it that way, it, it actually makes it a lot clearer as to why sometimes when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, what does that mean? We're going to get to that today. Um, but also it explains to you why this sort of this gradual progression of why these plagues occur the way that they do. Why frogs? Anybody here hate frogs? I don't know. <laughs> do you really? <laughs> okay, well, I'll let you read that section then, Sharon. Uh, but why the progression? And there, there, is a, there is a structure to it, and there's a meaning to it, and it culminates in the death of the firstborn Egyptians. And we're going to get to that a little bit tonight, and we're going to talk about it more next week in the Passover. So we're going to, with that being said, the two big um, main meta-narratives of today is that it is a battle. What you're seeing is a battle between the gods of this, uh, demons, essentially, uh, Egyptian gods, if there were such a thing, or demons, if that's what's really be behind what they're doing, uh, and the God of the Bible, the true God of, of Scripture. Okay? And then secondly, um, you begin to also see this idea of God's hardening heart, and we'll get to that in a minute, or God hardening Pharaoh's heart, which we're going to get to. Anyway, let's go ahead and, let's go ahead and jump in. We're in chapter 6, verse 28. Um, let's, let's go into it. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt... The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Um, uncircumcised lips just means um, that he was not a, he's a Jew, not a Gentile. So basically what Moses is saying is, Why in the world would this Gentile king, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, why would he listen to me? Fair point, right? If God said to you, hey, go to, go to President Trump and say blah, right, or whomever, and go to, go to the President of Japan and say blah, go to the Queen of England and say something, you'd say, well, why in the world would the Queen listen to me, right? That's what, kind of what Moses is driving it. And verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Verse 3. So basically, Abraham, or Moses, you're right. You, you don't have anything here, but you're going to do what I tell you to do, and I'm the power behind you, so don't, don't sweat it. But this is the, what I want to touch on right now. Verse 3. But I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders... And in Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let's, let's just dive into this for a second. Um, he's basically, Moses, he's saying, Moses, God is saying, Moses, go do what I tell you to do. And Moses says, they're not going to listen to me. And God says, you know what? You're right. But why? Now, but think about it. Moses is saying, Pharaoh, the, this sun god representative, is not going to listen to me, Moses, because I'm just a human being. I'm just Moses, Right? And what does God say to Moses? Why is Pharaoh not going to listen to him? Is it because Moses is of no account and Pharaoh is a big shot? No, it's because God is going to harden his heart. Why is that important? What does that tell you about Pharaoh and God? 
if, if, okay, so Moses is going to try to convince Pharaoh to let, the, let his people go, which we're going to get to in a minute. And God says he's not going to go for it. And the reason he's not going to go for it is because I am going to harden his heart. Why would God do such a thing? To prove that he is God. He says it. And that, and that um, the land of Egypt by my great acts of judgment. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch up my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So the point right from the very get-go, it's God is laying out the plan, which is Moses, you're going to go and you are going to confront Pharaoh, not by your own power, but by my power. And in fact, he's not going to let you go by my own power. Why not? Because I'm going to prove a very important point and that I'm God and he's not. You with me? What's that? He's nothing. That's right. And the God, that's right. And the gods are nothing. And actually, what you begin to see, if you read it closely, as we work our way through the plagues, the Egyptian people begin to be like, uh-oh, something's going. They begin to become converted. Why? Because they see the power of God operating in, the li- in their lives. And even though Pharaoh's heart is hard because God is hardening it to make a point, the people begin to get converted. This is actually a really, really important contemporary idea. Do you think people's hearts are hard today? So sometimes they are. Sometimes they aren't. Uh, sometimes, and, I, and, I, and again, this is a whole Calvinism versus Arminian argument. People have been debating this one for thousands of years. But I, but I just want to throw out there something important. God does so, sometimes, at least in this instance, harden people's hearts, right, to prove the point that he's in control. So when you, when you talk to somebody and they refuse to believe, two things. First of all, cut yourself some slack because you will never reason somebody and you will never convince someone to become a Christian. Neither will I ever convince someone to become a Christian. Um, I will never convince someone to take their faith seriously. I will never convince someone to be more deliberate and holy and intentional. I may encourage them. I may try to remove barriers to faith. That we can all do. I can tell my own story, but you will never convince someone. That's God's job. You with me? So cut yourself some slack. I mean, be intentional about being, uh, being open about the gospel and being willing to tell how God has worked in your life. But God's, God's job is in the conversion business, not yours. A lot of people, well, anyway, that's what I got to say about that. Um, let's move on here. So uh, verse eight, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you, Moses, shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Could you imagine? I mean, it sounds so like, if you just put yourself in context, Moses and Aaron are going to demand that the the Israelites be let go. (laughs) Yeah, right. Cheap labor, slave labor? Nah, thanks. These people are very helpful to us. And not only is he going to go and make this case, Moses and Aaron, he's going to go and throw a stick on the ground. It's going to turn into a snake. Yeah, right. But God promises us that when we are faithful, if we do what he says, even if it is outrageous by worldly standards, he rewards it. That we are called, all we are called to do is testify and be obedient and let the Lord work it all out. Does that make sense? 
I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. Just a few minutes ago, I was in my office. I had five minutes before we came in here, and I'm, I was watching the, Brett, uh, the Kavanaugh stuff going on there. And he said, and you can watch it tonight when you get home and watch the news. It was, I, was, I was astounded by this. He's a, he's a Catholic, a Christian, as you know, and very devout man. And he said, they were talking about this whole uh, Ford thing. And he said last night he was saying his prayers with his daughter, who's 10. And they were, of course, they'd been through the ringer with this whole thing. And his daughter said, Daddy, we need to pray for her. And they did. On, t- on TV, he said that, in front of the whole. So I just thought, man, what? What a, what, a, what a great testimony, right? Now, is, are people going to be converted in mass by that? I don't know, but it moved me enough to be here telling you about it. So point is, when God tells you to do something, you do it, even though the idea might be a little bit outlandish. <laughs> um, uh, then Pharaoh, uh, so Moses and Aaron went, verse 10, to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, Moses, Aaron cast on his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret acts. For each man cast on his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, so here's the first thing to see. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Do you see the point here, the dynamic here? Um, let me just say one, one quick thing. I always wondered, well, how did these magicians make wood turn into serpents? Uh, it's actually a very good question. And um, if you notice here, it's, it's a little tiny detail in the, in the, uh, in the, in the text. Um, verse 11, um, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. That is a Hebrew way of saying uh, they fooled them. Does Harry Houdini really saw women in half? Or maybe he never did that. But you know, you know people, they, they show like magic tricks and some guy's got, you know, he saws a woman in half or something. It's, a, it's a, an illusion. It's, a, it's, a, it's trickery. That's what that means in there. So I guess the point being, the, uh, it's, whether it's unclear, but one plausible explanation to this is that the way that these men didn't actually create serpents, but actually did it somehow through their magic arts. And somehow they... They did something which put a serpent down on the ground and caused some sort of illusion to make, you know, some sort of uh, way that it was, people were fooled. But even so, just to seal the deal, uh, Moses' and Aaron's serpent eats theirs, right? So, what's that? Sounds like Hollywood. Sounds like Hollywood. But that, but that, that is actually the first sign that, before the plagues, this is the first sign. And if you notice, Pharaoh's heart was hard. So he saw it. And, he, and there's no explanation for it, but yet he doesn't believe. And then we begin to roll into the ten plagues. Then the Lord, verse 14, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Notice something there. Does it say, I hardened it? It says, his head. So here's an interesting thing I want to bring up to you. It's going to be repeated over and over again, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Most times it says, he, Pharaoh, has hardened his heart. A few times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the point I'm trying to make is this. Um, when you talk about somebody, in Pharaoh's case, he is making a deliberate, willful decision not to believe. Right? Does God, does God at some point let people have the consequences of their own decisions? 
Yes, he does. Does God maybe blind people to things when they begin to walk away from him in order to bring repentance? Yes, he does. If you meet somebody who deliberately and intentionally hardens their heart, meaning their hard heart means refusing to look at the facts, refusing to even consider the possibility, at some point that person continues to walk away, God might very well put something in front of them which is going to prevent them from seeing it. I mean, later on in the New Testament, Jesus talks in parables, and it says he talks in parables so that people would not understand. I was wondering that, but the idea being, sometimes God puts things in our place, if we are walking away from him, to allow us to see the consequences of those decisions. Does that make sense, everybody? Yes? And so, and, and so, and, and the other thing, too, is this is not just God going, aha, Pharaoh, I'm hardening your heart. This is a, an interaction, we would say, in psychological terms. It's both God-caused sometimes and also Pharaoh-caused on occasion as well. So um, the Lord said, go to, verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to get water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go. That they, here's the reason why, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Um, let me stop there, and we'll keep rolling through this. That word for turning into blood doesn't mean it turned into, like, blood that would come out of your veins. It means uh, it turns red. Um, so in other words, the, the water did not, it wasn't like, I mean, it could have been blood, but the word, the, most of the commentators I looked at said it probably meant the water was somehow, something happened to the water which made it foul, the animals died, it was not potable, you couldn't drink it, and it had a red color to it. Could it have been blood? Yeah, potentially. But it could also have just been something. And it, the word for blood there does not necessarily mean the blood that comes out of your veins. It just means like blood color. Could have been a red tide, right? Lake Okeechobee. But... But the point is, and I'm not trying to naturalize this, I'm saying the word, the Hebrew word for red there means red like blood, like a blood like red, okay? Uh, but, but people say, well, that was a algae infestion that came through and, met out and have all these naturalistic explanations for it. Okay, maybe, except it doesn't actually, it doesn't occur until, water, until Moses strikes the Nile, right? I don't know about you, but I don't think... I mean, if you have a red tide, for example, it's not because uh, I struck the, you know, the ocean with a, with a staff. There is a supernatural component here. Even if there is some sort of natural element being used here, I don't know. It's not clear. But clearly, whatever happened to the Nile was because of God and because of, because of Moses' obedience to do what he tells him to do. Does that make sense? And so the water turns, in, turns red, and the people uh, and the the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. It means they'll get sick from it. They can't do it. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Um, when it says that God, Aaron holds out his arm over all of Egypt, uh, that expression means there, this is God exercising his sovereign power over all things. Why the Nile? Why do you think? It's 
This, the, the Nile is the source of life. Anybody ever been to Egypt? I never have been. There are, there are oases and there are green things, but only along the Nile, right? The Nile is the source of their life. And so what, as, if God is trying to bring Pharaoh and the Egyptians to repentance, the first thing he's going to show them is the things that they're relying on for life can't save them. He has control over it. Does that make sense? And we're going to see with frogs and the hail and all that stuff that God gradually undermines the, uh, the way that they, they provide for themselves. Moses did, verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and the water turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so the Egyptians could not drink from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. I have no idea what that means. How? So Pharaoh's heart remains hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even lose, take this to heart. And the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water from the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Where did the people get water after this happened? They, where did they get it? They dig it out of the ground, right? The water, it had, was, the water that was affected was water that was in the Nile, so it was exposed to the air. And if it was in a bowl somewhere or in a cistern, all of that was spoiled, so they had to dig to get the water out. So God provided for them, right? He gives them a shot across the bow, and all the plagues are progressive shots across the bow, right? He provides for it. He, he shows them his power. He shows them that their way of living is under threat because they are being disobedient. But he also provides for them in his grace. Make sense? Any comments or questions on that? Nothing? Okay. Frogs. Frogs wouldn't bother me. Would they bother you? <laughs> frogs are good in Felsmere, fried, fried frog legs. So, so that was the first, the first, uh, the first uh, plague. But notice, after seven days, the Lord restores the Nile back to the way it was. Right? Then, verse 8, The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Second time, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold... I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the house of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Man, that's a lot of frogs. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come, out, come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did their same, did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come out of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord. This is what I want to point out to you. Um, before I get into verse 8, uh, notice something here. There's the, there's this, the serpent incident, right? The staff to serpent. Then there's the water in the Nile becoming impotable and not drinkable. Now there's frogs that come out. Moses is beginning, or Pharaoh rather, is beginning to see a pattern here, right? Moses calls out, puts his hand out, raises his staff, and these things occur. And verse 8, look at this. Then Pharaoh 
called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. What does it mean when he says plead with the Lord? What is he asking for him to do? What does Pharaoh ask? If you ask someone to plead to the Lord for you, what are they asking them to do for you? Pray. Would Pharaoh ask Moses? Now, remember, Pharaoh is supposed to be the supposed to be God. But now this quote unquote God is now saying to to Moses and Aaron, would you please pray to your God for me to save me? Let's remember remember back at 9-11, or actually there's more recent examples of that, when things go really bad, what do people do? They go to church, right? For a little while. <laughs> but the point being that when things, when the bottom falls out, when you becomes when it becomes clear to you that circumstances are outside of your control, which they always are, it's just that we fool ourselves into thinking sometimes they are in our control, but they're always really not. Um, but when things become obvious, when something happens, somebody gets sick or somebody dies or there's a great tragedy or something, people pray to God because they realize, I don't have any control here. Pharaoh's no different. Pharaoh, but Pharaoh uh, is supposed to be God. And what you see here is this beginning of a, you might always say a repentance. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to, the, to Pharaoh, be, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I, am, when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your house be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Now he asked, Moses said, when would you like this to happen? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Why would he ask him that? Why, why would, why would, why would, any, why would, remember that what's going on here is a battle of two deities, right? Why would Moses say, all right, Pharaoh, we can do that for you. When do you want it? Tomorrow. Not today, not immediately. Tomorrow. And he says, you got it. Why does Pharaoh do that? What do you think? He wants to give his magicians an opportunity to He could be. He wants to give his magicians an opportunity to do it, to see if maybe they can pull this off. I hadn't thought about that one. That's a good, a good point. But the reason that, uh, that Pharaoh gives, that Moses gives Pharaoh the opportunity to make the call of when is because as soon as it happens, there's going to be no, <laughs> Pharaoh will have no alternative but to say this is really God's work. So, for example, Moses said, Pharaoh says, tomorrow, verse 10, Moses says, be it as you say, so that you, and he says right here, so that you may know that there was no one like the Lord, our God. The frogs will go away from you and your house and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs that he had agreed, as he had agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out of the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Kind of like that red tide. But notice this. So Pharaoh says, help me. Moses says, sure, when do you want it? Tomorrow. You got it. And that's exactly what happens. Anybody here ever have a, have a crisis? You ask someone to pray for you. You pray. It comes to pass. And you say, man, that's awesome. And then you go back into the old way. Ever see that happen? Oh, yeah. Verse 15. But when Moses saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. How many do you see anybody see any parallels to that in our in our culture today? Sure, just like you said, people go to church if there's a crisis, 
People go to, uh, Jim said that people go to church when there's a crisis, right? When, when the circumstances have become patently and clearly outside of your control and your possessions or your person are under threat, people go to God. Why? Because they got no other options, right? But the problem is, and here's the, here's the thing that I just want to draw to your attention. What you see in Pharaoh is actually no different than you'd see in your, your, your heart and mine as we are allowed on the road to conversion, right? Or anybody else's heart, for that matter. It's a gradual process. Pharaoh is never actually converted. Um, but the point, if you see his heart, he, you know, God is gracious to him, does what he says. Pharaoh says, oh, man, that was great. Thanks, Lord. But you know what? I'm going back to the old way. Does God smite, smite you know, poof, lightning bolt him? No, God actually is patient with him. God's gracious with Pharaoh, astoundingly. So, third plague, the gnats. The Lord said to, this, this is the one that would bug me. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that they, the dust, may become gnats in all of the, in all of the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. Gosh. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. What's beginning to happen? But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Do you see there's a gradual... Look, conversion to Christianity is a gradual thing, right? Can you all agree? I mean, even if you are, I mean, even if you cannot recall a time when you were not a believer, say you've always considered yourself a person, a believer in Jesus, real kind of conversion is a process. I mean, it, it takes, I mean, you may be saved here, but you begin to grow and your faith begins to mature. Did you notice the magicians who up until now have been able to provide an alternative explanation for events? They finally go, man, I got, we're, we got nothing. We got nothing. We can't do gnats. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but they couldn't do gnats. And not only that, not only that, they say, this is the finger of God. You know, when I was in graduate school, a little a short segue, when I was in graduate school, I was really kind of brought to this sort of renewed thinking about my faith in Christianity, because I wasn't really a believer. I mean, maybe nominally. But I was just saying to Tom earlier, I, I taught in grad school, I was 21 or 22 years old, I taught um, statistics and scientific research methodology to undergrads, which was a blast. I loved it. And I, that really, really, really confirmed my faith in God. Why? Because when you begin to study scientific method and the assumptions that it makes, you, I think, are left with the inevitable conclusion that there has to be a God. Otherwise, science doesn't work, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinion. That was actually my nap moment, right? When I, was in grad, when I was in grad school teaching science and actually learning about it at the same time and realizing, I got nothing, man. This, this, there's something behind all this. And that's actually what the, what the magicians say here as well. This is the finger of God. We got nothing. But Pharaoh, his heart was hardened. He refuses. And don't miss that either. People, uh, some people don't come to Christianity because they lack evidence. That was true for me. Kind of. <laughs> but actually, uh, people's reluctance to become Christians is really because they don't want to. 
right? I mean, some people just don't know anything. That's one. But part of it is just pride, having a hard heart. Fourth plague, flies. Uh, the flies are actually probably mosquitoes, some kind of biting thing. So the gnats were just, you know, uh, those things that get, fly around here when you leave the fruit on the, on the counter too long, you know, leave the oranges out and you get those. These are mosquitoes. These are, these are um, some kind of biting thing. Verse 20, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord. Could you imagine? Pharaoh's probably like, would you get out of here for crying out loud? Every time you show up, Moses, something bad happens. Let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let them go, behold, there's that word I've told you in the scripture, it is an important one. I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. Notice this. So that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. This is the first time God begins to parse out, even though he's beginning to ratchet up the suffering a little bit to get the attention for the point of conversion. The whole purpose of God in all these plagues is the conversion of the Egyptians and to prove his power. And this is the first time he says, I'm going to send these mosquitoes, these biting, you know, black flies or whatever they are, but they're not going to affect my people. We see the fulfillment of this uh, next week in the Passover. But I want, verse 9, But I will set apart the land of Goshen, that's where the Israelites are, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies may be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of, of all the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen, and the Lord did so. Um, I preached a sermon last week, I was in Boston last week, and uh, I preached a sermon on uh, last Tuesday night on the Feast of the Holy Cross. Um, and I preached, my sermon was how the cross is divisive. And, and I, didn't, I don't mean divisive. Um, my point was that there are, uh, we as Christians have to recognize that we are Christians and other people aren't. And, I, and we're not, we don't do that as a matter of pride, but we have to know that our job is to be, we are called out as Christians from the culture in which we live. So is everybody else if they choose to get on the Jesus bus, right? If they choose to become Christians, they can be welcomed in. But the point is, there, God places, there is a division between God's people and the world. If you see it right here, God's people have protection where the people of, this, of the world do not. Do you see it? Um, and people say, oh, that's very divisive. That's not very uh, embracing. Well, no, it's not actually. In one sense of the word, we as the church are called to embrace all people who want a life in Jesus. But at the same time, there's the sheep and the goats, right? There are the chosen and the unchosen. There are the Jews and the Egyptians. Um, so, and the Lord did so, verse 24, there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt that was ruined by the swarms of flies. Um, then Pharaoh called Moses, verse 25, and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. Now, why does he say that? Moses has been saying all along, let my people go. This is kind of funny. People always leave the, the command off right there. Let my people go. That's not what it says. It says, let my people go so that they might worship me, sacrifice to me. 
And Moses is back in chapter 3, if you remember, God said, I was going to send you into the land of the Amorites and the Hittites and all these different people groups. That's not Egypt. That's a land outside of Egypt. And so Mo Moses knows they can't be in Egypt and do this. They have to leave it. And they have to leave it, and they have to go to sacrifice to God. That's why they're leaving, not just to be free, but to actually worship God where he wants them to. And Pharaoh called Moses and said, all right, guys, really, the gnats were bad, but the mosquitoes are killing me. Go sacrifice to your Lord within the land here in Egypt. Notice this. But Moses said, it would not be right for us to do so, for the offerings we will sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If you look at um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, he lays out, God lays out where he wants them to go and sacrifice. Um, if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Look at verse 27. We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Moses, Pharaoh's beginning to offer him a stick, you know. Plead for me, pray for me, go. And don't go too far, but you can go and plead for me, Pharaoh says. Then Moses says, behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord from the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, his, this time also, and did not let his people go. Um, you see a pattern here? Any observations? Okay. It is repetitive, I admit. Um, Verse 9. We're never going to get through all this, are we? Let me go. In. Okay, verse 9. This is when things begin to heat up. Now, so far, God has, has spoiled the Nile. And the next thing he does is the livestock die. It says here, uh, The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord, look at this, will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Do you see that? And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And what does Pharaoh do? He sees all these things dead. And Pharaoh, verse 7, sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. He went and checked it out. One of the things you need to understand about somebody who is being, um, who is part of becoming a converting, part of conversion is a willingness to explore the evidence, right? So God had said, I'm going to destroy the livestock of the Egyptians, but I'm going to spare the Israelites. Pharaoh wakes up the next morning to get his coffee. Finally, the mosquitoes are gone, but then all of his animals are dead. I'll get to that in a second. And he says, well, that's strange. Let me go. Something must have happened. It must be a plague. Something got sick. Maybe somebody, who knows what. But he goes to the Israelites, and their animals are fine. God has protected, once again, his people from this catastrophe. 
but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. One thing I got to see here too, God is unraveling the Egyptian um, culture, their worldview, their whole uh, thing they put in place to sustain themselves. The Nile is gone and now the livestock are gone. What else do you have? You've got, you got, um, you've got uh, crops, but God's going to destroy that too in a second with hail. So God is beginning to remove all of the things of this world that the Egyptians cling to for meaning to try to get them to come to him. Does that make sense? Is this a different way of looking at this or for you? Okay. Um, let, let's skip uh, the sixth plague boils. Okay, we've all been there. I mean... I've never had been there, but some people have that. Uh, boils break out on the, on the soles of, of, on the sores of man and beast throughout all of Egypt, but the Israelites are spared. And then verse 13, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will go, I will send the plagues on, I will send all, all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you will, may know that there is no, none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up. Look at this. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power. Um, verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his livestock in the field. To see what happened, Moses has warned the people, and the, some of the people go, holy cow, we probably, we, but this guy Moses may be, uh, I see a pattern developing here. Maybe we should listen to this guy. Some of them put their animals away because of this threat of hail. Some of them go, ah, come on, it's nothing. But notice that Part of Egypt is beginning to become converted. So far, the magicians have already said, you know, I'm tapping out, Pharaoh. Now people in the culture are beginning to move towards the Lord because they've seen all this power. Um, so some people do it and some people don't. Verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt um, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his hand toward the heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire upon the earth. Verse 25, the hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. So who was protected from all this? The people that did what? The Egyptians who did what? Put their animals in the barn, right? Said, you know what? I better, I'm going to listen to this. They were, they were spared, and, the, and God's people were spared. So do you, the point you begin to see here is God, God is not just being, you know, lobbing thunderbolts from heaven for this sort of, which people perceive this oftentimes, to just sort of punish people for the sake of doing it. He's actually trying to get them into a state of repentance so that they will follow him, and people begin to. Pharaoh doesn't, but everybody else begins to. Verse 27, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, thus, this time I have sinned. Do you see the progression? It's beginning to get even stronger. Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Woo. Plead with the Lord. Pray for me. 
For there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. But then down to verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Um, what do you guys think? Anybody have a reaction to that? Yeah, but I think, you know, people are beginning, I mean, we all do this, right? We all see God working in our lives. We see change. We're like, yeah, pray for me. And then they do, and you get a result, and then you go, you know, I'm going to go back to the old way. We all do this. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse, uh, chapter 10, go to Pharaoh, for I have for I have hardened his heart. Now, this is an interesting thing. Um, at some point, God becomes the heart hardener. And it's, this is the first time. Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Remember very much in the beginning, way in the beginning in chapter 6, God described how Pharaoh's heart would be hard. Up until now, it's been Pharaoh who has hardened his own heart. Now, God does. In other words, you know, anybody here of kids... Uh, at some, you know the expression of tough love, where you begin to at some point hold people away? I, I, don't, I can't prove this, but maybe it's some, that's kind of what God is after here. In one sense, tough love to Pharaoh and the people whose heart he heart, he's hardening, but also as an example to them to show that his power is not going to be stopped by Pharaoh's unwillingness to obey. Right? And quite frankly, um, our unwillingness to obey is not going to stop him either. God. Right? The church, you know, people, will, you ever hear people say, oh, the church is in decline, it's, the church is in, the, in the U.S. is failing, which is it's in decline for sure in some, by some measures. Um, I don't fear that. I mean, I, it makes me sad. But God is in control. So Moses went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says, that's verse, sorry, verse 3, thus says the Lord, um, where am I here? The God of Hebrews, how... How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Ah, now this is God throwing down. All right, Pharaoh, you've seen the evidence. What's, the, what's, your, uh, what's your decision? How long, are you just, how long before you submit to me, Pharaoh, you uh, erstwhile king or erstwhile God? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'll bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. Why locusts? Well, so far, you've had the Nile polluted. You've had the livestock killed. The hail has destroyed all the crops. The locusts are going to come and take care of everything else. The point being, what God is doing is he is, he is again, he is destroying the worldview, which the Egyptians lean on for security to show them that he's the one who's in control. And, and I think, again, I, I keep trying to make the same point over and over again. Um, when, when things happen in our own culture, when, like, you know, 9-11 or whoever, when, when we begin to realize how frail our hurricanes barreling down on us, you know, when you go, oh my gosh, we could lose everything. But God will, some, will let these things happen to remind us that we have very little control over, over life. He does, thanks be to God, right, which is our, our sense of security and hope. But the reality is we have very little control over things. I would say to people, you know, I could get in the car tonight and drive home and get, you know, get in a car wreck, 
I hope I don't, but it could happen. I mean, we all have so, our, our illusion of control over our lives is so, this sort of self-imposed naivete that we have, of, right? It, it really is, but we really have very little. And what God is doing is he's gradually removing these sources of control that the Egyptians have, that they're leaning on to show them that he is really the only thing they can rely on. And he'll do it to you too. He does it to me. Thanks be to God for that. Um, let's skip ahead here. Uh, let's go to uh, the darkness plague. So verse 21, uh, chapter 10, verse 21. Um, what's the last one he does? So, he's, so the Lord brings darkness on the land. Why, why darkness? That's true. They worship the sun god. So by bringing darkness, you are forcing the, you are removing the power of the sun god. You are destroying any kind of agricultural ability, right? You are uh, destroying, actually, one thing which we miss. I mean, when we lose power at my house, you know, the kids get upset because the AC is not working and stuff like that. But in the ancient, in, in ancient cultures, at nighttime, um, you would actually, they would, the cities would have gates around them and people would be in the field, they'd come in, they'd close the gates, they'd park, post guards, because you can't see anything. There's no natural, I mean, there's no artificial light, which sounds kind of funny, but there's nothing there. And the candles they had back then were not very, it's like a little oil lamp, it could maybe, you could maybe see a piece of paper or something, or maybe find your way to the, <laughs> to the bathroom or something, but you can't see very far. And so to travel at night in this period of history was extremely dangerous. Nobody would dare going out at night unless you're a criminal. So to bring darkness means, again, to remove any sense of security that you have of protecting yourself. So to, to Janet's point, you're removing the Pharaoh's power, demonstrating once again Yahweh's power over the sun, this supposed sun god, but also removing the final thing which gives people a sense of security, and that is they can see people coming to threaten them. And it, it says here, um, that says that the darkness was so, uh, this, is like, this is kind of a cool thing. Verse 21, I just think, thought this was neat. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Um, that is not a literal word, but it means a darkness which is so dark, you can't see a thing. Anybody ever been in darkness where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face? It's terrifying. I once did a, uh, my very short-lived career as a volunteer fireman, uh, was great. I could do Hearst tools or the, the, the tools you cut at people out of cars and stuff. Piece of cake, blood and guts, piece of cake for me. That didn't bother me. But one thing I didn't know, I do know now, that's why I'm not a fireman, is I am claustrophobic. I didn't know that until they put a, a mask and gear on you and they put you in a smoke drill, which is basically it's artificial smoke, but it's smoke in a house. And do you know how a fireman searches a house? You come in to a room, you can't see a thing. It is, and, it's, and you're in a breathing mask because so it, you know, you can't really hear very well. You can't see anything. And the way you search a room is you grab a wall and you feel with a wall and either you swing a tool with this arm so you can hear, find a person who's passed out or you've got somebody hanging on to your pant leg who's doing the same thing if it's a big room. But if you lose, hang, you lose that wall or that person lets go, you're, you're a dead man. And, and, I, and I never realized how terrifying it was to be so, and so disorienting until they actually put me in there. And I had to try to find my way around this room. And I'm like, I get out of it. And I'm like, I can't do this. And I, and I, and I, uh, I never went to call. I mean, I, I, never went, I was willing to help out, but I never wanted to be in a position where I was called upon to do something that I couldn't perform. So I backed out of it. But 
just an example, it's a, it's a terrifying thing. Um, So finally, verse, let's look at verse 24, after the darkness, then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve the Lord, your little ones may go with you, so you can take the wife and the kids, uh, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must let us go have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we, we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we are to serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day that you see my face you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again, and he doesn't. And then the last plague is the... Uh, is the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Passover. Um, interestingly, so the Passover is where God finally says, all right, that's it. Uh, what, what, and we'll talk about this next week because there's a lot to it. Uh, the angel of death passes over the Egyptian and kills the firstborn. The Egyptians practice something called primogeniture. The firstborn gets all the property. And so, um, again, not only has God wiped out crops, fields, the water, the light, all the things people rely upon for security in this world, now he's, now he's wiping out family. Right? It's, so the point is the, the, whole, the Egyptians are having the, the bottom wiped out from underneath them. And the point is always not because God is cruel, but on the contrary, because God is loving. Because if, if people that don't become Christians, what happens to them at the end of time? They die and go to hell be perfectly blunt about it. So, what, so the suffering in this world, if it brings you to repentance, is worth it because the eternal consequences are horrific. And so God may very well bring you to a, 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 a plagues moment in your life. He probably will. He has to me to, to bring you to repentance and make you realize the things you stand upon in this world really aren't very strong. But it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he does. And he wants you to have your focus on him and not on the things of this world and the things that we put there to convince ourselves that we're in control. So um, that's all I've got. I can't believe we covered all that. Uh, yes, sure. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, that what? Aaron gets, a lot of, Aaron gets a lot of press in this story. Yes, he sure does. And uh, Father Gordy, you mentioned last week, didn't you, that Aaron was, uh, was you said something about him I, you wanted me to reiterate, didn't you? No? Okay, well, never mind. Well, Aaron, Aaron uh, did the first three plagues. That's right. And then Moses did uh, five, and God did uh, two. That's right. <laughs> right, right. Well, God did all of them. That's right. Well, God did all of them, but he sometimes used Moses and sometimes used Aaron. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, James. Well, Aaron is 83, and but see that, that's right, but that, but see that, and that's actually a really good point. These men are not soldiers and virile men that can take on an enemy. Pharaoh would have been a young man by, by certainly by that standard. I mean, uh, God uses old, the elderly and those who are weak. I don't, I don't mean weak in terms of mentality, but in terms of physicality. But he always uses the weak to shame the strong. Why? Because it's not about us. It's about him working through us. Right? And that's why he does it that way. Little Mary. Little Mary of Nazareth. Right? A 14-year-old girl from 
Nowheresville. Felsbury. <laughs> Pig's Knuckle, Arkansas, I would say. Yeah. Somebody had a question over here. Yes. Hmm? I don't know how old Pharaoh was. I, I, don't, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Um, does anybody know by offhand? Uh, 46. I really, I, really, I, I really don't know. But he would have certainly been, um, I mean, 80 and 83 is really, really old for that period of time. So I would imagine Pharaoh was, a, was significantly old, younger than that. But, you know, uh, I, I really don't know. What's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a newborn child, so he must have been, like, this is a younger man, I would, would imagine. Talk fast tonight. Sorry about that, you guys. I had a lot to cover. Next week, it's a much shorter text, the Passover, but a lot of very important theology. Uh, if you read ahead, um, does somebody have the citation for next week? It's probably just right after. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 42. The Passover, of course, is uh, prefigures not only uh, God separating the Israelites from the Egyptians, uh, it also prefigures the cross, right? The Passover lamb, uh, the cross, the, the blood of the, put over the lintels of the door of the Jews to mark that the angel of death, death will pass over them and that they are saved by the blood. And then we see later on the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ, who is the Passover lamb, he's referred to as, is the, uh, is, it's, a, it's, a, it's like one of those themes you see, see through scripture. Uh, that we'll point out next week. But anyhow, hope you guys enjoyed this. It was a, that was a long one. Anyway, um, shall we uh, close in prayer? All right. Lord God, we thank you for um, the story of the Exodus, the story of really your, your methods of bringing the hardened human hearts to repentance. Lord, we thank you for the witness of those who did repent, those who... Um, began to see that you are the Lord, uh, even, in, even the Egyptians who began their conversion process and seeing that you are the God beyond, behind all things. Lord, help us to see uh, ourselves in this story. Help us to be willing to put aside the things of this world and trust you in, in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.